0: are here. If you're a mom, I want to say a special welcome to you if you decided to come to church with your kids today. Thank you so much for coming and checking us out, a church that meets at a school and uh, being with us this morning. The only thing we ask you to do is if you would take a moment and look inside your worship program. You'll see on the worship program we're doing a marriage series right now, and inside you'll see some different things that are happening. Uh, The women's retreat that's coming up, various different things, communion today. But there's a little card in there. We call it a connection card. If you'd fill it out for us and tell us you're here, uh, by taking it out to the first-time guest tent. It's an orange tent on your way out. That would be a wonderful blessing to us. And uh, Southbridge Moms, we are glad that you are here. You, if you're here for the first time today, that was our, our first time for our, our new worship pastor leading um, here. So you can always go, hey, I came to church here the first time, the first day that he was leading with us. And uh, I'll tell you, Pastor Seth has been a blessing to us uh, as a church staff already. And I think he's going to be a blessing to us as a church family. And so, yeah, give him a hand. We can welcome Welcome him. I don't know if he's back there now, where he's at, but we're glad that Seth's here. We're glad that you're here, if you're a mom. And uh, moms, I was just thinking as a pastor this week, I was wanting to understand momhood a little bit more. I know it's a little bit ironic whenever you have a man stand up and talk about uh, women things. And I was writing to some of our moms in our church, some older moms that have grown kids and some younger moms and some moms that are like about to have babies and all that kind of stuff. And I asked them one question, and the question was simply this, what's the worst mess you've ever had to clean up? And some of you moms, that's what you're thinking about. I'm like, oh, no, it wasn't that one. Oh, there's, there's lots of options probably for some of you. And some people wrote me back. They gave multiple stories. And I'll just say to those of you who wrote me back, I wrote to about 20 different folks. Um, thank you. And some of you, my heart went out to you when I read your stories. For others of you, I was literally laughing out loud at your pain. You know, and I just had to be candid about that. Some of you told stories that were so gross, I couldn't even say Like, we're pretty real as a church here. I could not say them from this stage. Valerie Harris, if you're out there. You won, by the way. <laughs> and for those of you know Valerie, you can ask her what story she said in. And some of you gave stages of stories. It was wonderful. And I know some of you uh, just remember some of those moments from when the kids were real little and your kids aren't real little anymore and they're, and they're funny and you think like, the messes you deal with now are more difficult. And some of you are here today and uh, it's just bravery that you're here because of maybe a relationship with your mom or because of your own story that has to do with motherhood or not being able to have children. And I want to acknowledge that. Thank you for your courage of being here. Uh, But some of those moms that I sent uh, an email to, they actually, I didn't request a picture, but they voluntarily sent me pictures of their messes. And so I want to share a couple of them with you today. These are our own Southbridge kids that are here uh, on the screen. This is a little gal. You see a bunch of cat food? That is the laundry room. You don't know the time there. It's about 5 o'clock in the morning. This little girl decided she was going to get up and lure her cat into the dryer. (laughs) And so that is cat food that is there. We've got a little boy because we didn't want to have just little girls here. We've got a little boy here. That is sunscreen all over his legs and in the grain of the wood floor that you see there. And I was thinking about this in first service, and I thought, that kid one day is going to go to his mom. Why don't my ankles ever tan? Like, what is wrong here? Little boys make messes. Little girls make messes. A lot of the moms sent in the various different things that messes were made with. Here you see cat food. Vomit was a common one. There's sunscreen there. I made a list as I was going through the emails. It wasn't exhaustive, but here's some other ones. Uh, Vomit. Other brown substances. (laughs) Sometimes named in the email, sometimes not named in the emails. Lip gloss. Food from blenders that lacked lids. (laughs) Milk that was poured all over the place. Water from overflowing toilets that leak through the ceiling. Thank you, Kelly Kivett, for that story. <laughs> Grime and grit from outside. Trash that's already been cleaned up, but it's now being cleaned up a second or third time, depending on the story. Lice, ticks, various animals that need to be cleaned up. Foods of all kinds of different things. And those are just moms with girls, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. They're equal offenders. But I did have one mom who gave me, and it wasn't so much the substances as the variety of places that messes were cleaned up, that I'm just going to read to you what she actually sent me. She actually asked me in the question, too, uh, if you use one of my examples, do I get a prize? After the service, Lauren, we've got flowers for you outside the door, and chocolates, and all the other mothers as well. But she wrote this. She said, I've cleaned up throw up at an indoor play facility, lip gloss out of carpet, phone out of the toilet, that's an expensive one, crayon pencils, dry erase markers and permanent markers off of hardwood floors and walls, stickers off of furniture, car seats with old milk smell, blow-up diapers that leak out of the diaper, their clothing, and all over the car seat while at a funeral for a friend that I had to sing for. (laughs) Thank you, Mom. Cleaning lice out of the whole family's hair, broken nail polish bottles all over the linen closet. That's all I can think of off the top of my head. So she didn't even try, and she came up with that list. (laughs) Moms, thank you. I mean, you do lots of stuff for us. One of the things that you've done is clean up a lot of messes. And uh, for that, we're grateful. We want to honor you today. But today we're doing a marriage series. And I was thinking about the stories that I got from these moms in light of the marriage series. And and you know what happens to these little cute things that create all these messes? Because we are born with a propensity to make messes. We grow up and we keep making messes. Only the messes aren't always easily cleaned up with a towel or by buying new carpet or cleaning up the nail polish. Oftentimes the messes are emotional, they're relational, they're spiritual, they have a ripple effect, they impact other people. In fact, some of the moms that have older kids wrote, you know, there were these messes, but the biggest mess was drug rehab, or the biggest mess was getting my kid out of jail multiple times. One family was candid enough to share about some messes the kids did, but then said the biggest mess in our family was when we had to decide if we were going to be a family because it was a mess that mom and dad created. And today in our series... We're going to talk about what to do when your marriage is a mess. And we've talked about some pretty clean topics, at least theoretically, so far in this series. The first week that we were together, we were in Ephesians chapter 5. We talked about God's plan for marriage. What's the purpose? What's the point? We laid the foundation for the whole deal. And we said the point's not fairy tale because you complete one another because you know you're skeptical and you decided to throw the paper on it. It's not because of whatever the romanticism ideas are. It's not even because just because of procreation. You don't just get married because of companionship. There are lots of reasons in the Bible, but the primary one was this: to show Christ's love for the church. Amen. That's ideal, but what about when one of the spouses don't love Christ? One of them won't even go to church. It becomes a mess the next week we talked about how marriage is supposed to work and we talked about the husband's role and the wife's role and how when it works, when you come together you're, you're mutually loving one another and putting each other's best interests forward and what that's supposed to look like and it's glorious, amen? amen? But what about when one or both don't? Last week we talked about God's plan for sex about celebrating intimacy what about when you both don't have the same ideas what about when there isn't intimacy, not even talking about physical intimacy what about there's just not intimacy what about when it's a mess, what do you do when it's a mess. And here's the reality. Some of you might be on the verge of divorce. Some of you might have just been abandoned. Some of you, uh, you're living in a situation where everybody thinks it's great, but it's not great. Some of you have a pretty good marriage, but there's stuff. We all got stuff because we all make messes. And today we're going to ask the question, what do you do when marriage is a mess? And we started this series in Ephesians chapter 5. And we were there for the first couple of weeks. We're going to back up one chapter today. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 25 through 32. Now, if you haven't been with us, uh, let me give you the simple outline of the whole book of Ephesians. You can read the whole thing. Just sit down in one sitting and and you can go through the whole book. It's only six chapters. The first three chapters are all about what God has done. It talks about our state. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We were separated from God. We were without hope. We were without God. Here's the key. But God. God's the one who did the work. God's the one who changes lives. God's the one who saves. Amen? Amen. But God, who is rich in mercy and extended his love to us, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God the Father sent his Son to die on the cross to take upon the wrath that all of our sins deserved. It was God who did all the work. And God does this amazing thing in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. He gives us the Holy Spirit as a deposit in us, guaranteeing our inheritance that we're going to receive in glory with God the Father. The Holy Spirit is a person that comes to live within us that gives us incredible power. Here's what this means. The beginning of the book of Ephesians is not about what we're supposed to do. It's all about what God has done. There's one commandment. It's that we're supposed to remember. But really, it's not a bunch of to-dos. Chapter 4 on tells us what we're supposed to do. How do we live in light of what God's done? And he tells us a bunch of stuff you can't do and I can't do. But he gives us the Holy Spirit to live in us. And the Holy Spirit then empowers us to do the things He's commanded us to do. So here's the reality. Not only are you saved by grace, but anything that happens in your life and your transformation is also by grace. It's by the power of God. The things He commands us to do, He empowers by giving us the Holy Spirit. And the way that it functions is the same way you trusted Christ, by faith. It's by grace. You don't deserve it. By faith, you trust God to do it. And so what we're going to see in this passage today are some things that you can't do. Because some of you are going to think, all right, I got, these are the issues of my marriage. You're already making your list. Some of you got, your notepad. Know, what's he going to tell me? We're going to go through this thing and you can't fix it all. Here's one reason. Every marriage takes two people. And so everything I'm going to talk about here actually requires both people to be doing these things. So here's your temptation, and I'm going to help you resist it right now, to pull out the holy elbow for those of you sitting next to your spouse. Oh, that is what you need to hear, honey, you know. <laughs> And the passage we're looking at is really not even about marriage. It's about relationships between believers. And so some of you might be on the other side. Yeah, that guy needs to hear this too. Here, resist the holy elbow today. And God might have a word just for you. So give the Holy Spirit space to work on other people's hearts, not through your elbows. And you just see, what does God want to say to your heart right now? And so we're going to read in chapter 4, starting at verse 25, the immediate context is verse 17 through 24 of chapter 4. And what's just happened there is, is that Paul's telling the believers there in Ephesus, here, take off the old self, put on the new self. And he gives an image of clothing, like throw off the old clothes, and you think about the clothes you wore 20 years ago or 10 years ago or however old you are, and think about you know puffy shoulder pads or whatever it was. Get rid of that stuff. That's not you anymore. Put on the new clothes, whatever that is, because some stuff goes in cycles, so maybe it's puffy shoulder pads. I don't know look like the new life that Christ has given you. Put off the old, put on the new. What does it look like? And he decides to get practical and tell us what it looks like in relationships. And what we're going to see in verses 25 through 32 are five examples of what it's supposed to look like in relationship. And there's a contrast in each one of these examples. Notice that. It's the old life, one part, new life. When you have a mess, it's when you're living like the old life. How you make clean of the ma- start living in the new life. The only way we can do that is by the power of God. Look at it. Therefore, the therefore in verse 25 ties us back to verse 22. Put off, get rid of the old way of life. Therefore, having put away, here's an example of the old life. Falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we're members of one another. Another example, another command. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And here's the reason, and give no opportunity to the devil. Another command, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Another command, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion. Why? That it may give grace to those who hear. You've been given much grace. Here's the reason, give grace. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit here we see the holy spirit as evidence of his personhood he can be saddened grieved do not grieve the holy spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption another command let all bitterness wrath anger clamor slander be put away from you along with malice be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as god and christ forgave you amen There's a lot of stuff here. In these eight verses, you've got five different principles or five different examples of how this is supposed to work in relationship. And the structure's the same on every one. And so you can go back and look. Look at verses 25. Look at verses 26 and 27. Look at 28, 29. There's 31 and 32. It's all the same. Negative command, get rid of the old way of life. Positive command, do this. And then what's the motivation? Here's why. So notice it through all of them. It's negative command, positive command. Sometimes it's positive, then negative, but they're all there. Positive command and negative command, and then the motivation or the principle behind it, or why is it, what would, other than just it being said here, what's the, why would I do this? And you see it all throughout. And and here what we have is we've got, some of you are going to go through this, and you're going to think about your relationships, and some of us, oh, we do the positive pretty well, and we've thrown out the negative pretty well. Jot that down in your notes. You can encourage each other later when you have a, a conversation with your small group or as a couple. And there's going to be some things that you don't do so well. No one's going to be great in all of these. Or you're probably lying to yourselves. And no one's probably going to be so bad that you're awful in all of these. Or, or, or maybe that's true. But, but as we go through them, what you're going to see is old life, new life, positive commands, negative commands, motivation. Why do we do this stuff? First one is be honest. So I'm going to give you five, five points today. The first one is this. Be honest. And you go back to verse 25, and it says, Therefore, put off all falsehood, all falsehood." Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we're members of one another. You don't lie to your own body. And as believers in Jesus Christ, I love what Pastor Seth had us do at the beginning of the service. You know, we're one in Christ. We're one in Christ. We've got one Lord, one spirit, one baptism. We're united throughout the scripture. It talks about us being the body of Christ. And you wouldn't lie to your own body, would you? You wouldn't say, you know, with your mind, you tell your feet to run out into traffic. Like, hey, there's no traffic, run. You, know, you wouldn't do that. You just don't do that. How much more in a marriage relationship when the two have become one. But yet, this seems like a simple one. Don't lie, tell the truth. But the problem is we don't realize how much lying and deception permeates everything we do. In our marriages, in all of our relationships, just in culture, and society as a whole. And if you want to think about our marriages, let me ask you about your dating life. How was your dating life? Do you ever lie to each other? <laughs> Try to put the best foot forward. You know, you don't come to the door with your curlers in and a bathrobe on and, you know, bedhead. Right, guys? <laughs> Instead, what do you do? You, you pluck and you tuck and you tan and you cut and you do you chisel if it's necessary. Like, you do whatever you got to do. And I'm just talking about the guys. Like, you do, all, you do all this stuff. Put your best foot forward. She comes to you and she says, do you want to go to the ballet? I love the ballet. You liar. I've never even been to the ballet. <laughs> Closest thing most of those guys saw the ballet was when a wide receiver was going down the sideline. Like they have, they have no interest in the ballet, but they think that you want them to like the ballet. And so what do we do? We create a persona, because we don't want to be rejected. We create a persona of what we think they want. That might be pretending to be spiritual. It might be pretending to be interested in the ballet. It might be all kinds of different things. But here's the good news, guys. She's lying too. <laughs> oh, I love your mom. I think your mom is great. <laughs> now, if you're a mother-in-law and you're here today, I'm not talking about your daughter-in-law. <laughs> but some of the other people here probably lied about that before. Or other things. And what happens is, and it's dangerous, because we've all done it to some degree, but what you start doing is you start creating the person you think that they want, and then eventually you've got to ask yourself the question, do they even like me, or do they just like the me that I created for them? And we lie. And we lie about ourselves. We lie to ourselves. We lie to each other. I remember one time I was getting a haircut And I asked the little lady who was cutting my hair about her marriage, how long she'd been married, and she started telling me about things that help marriage work. And she started telling me about purchases she would make that would make her husband angry, but she had it all figured out. I'm not sure if she was telling me so I could see if my wife did this or I could tell my wife to do this. I'm not sure what exactly she was thinking, but she said, I'll oftentimes buy things that I know will make my husband upset, so what I do is I buy five other things. And then I keep them in my trunk until the right moment. And then I bring all six things in the house. The other five purchases are fake purchases. She only plans to keep the sixth thing. And she says, and I show him all six things. And when he gets upset about it, I say, I'll take five of them back. And then he's happy. (laughs) Some of you are like, that's wisdom. I need to write that down. And he's like, (laughs) that's lying. Some of us, we like, we just lie so normally. It's like, that's just kind of how it works. Like, that's how we're supposed to do stuff. Now, that's the old way of living. Put off falsehood, stop lying, tell the truth with yourself, to yourself, to your spouse, to God, about your relationship. You see, remember what the point of marriage is all about? You go, you jump over one page and look at chapter five in verse 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. It's quoting Genesis two twenty-four, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Who's Christ? John 14, 6, he is the way, the truth, and the life. How are you going to put him on display through deception? When deception seeps through every area of our lives. How can we possibly be putting Christ on display? And you think about how relevant it is to marriage. Go back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, in the first week, we were talking about what it's supposed to look like with a husband and wife. and We saw that the husband oftentimes fails in his responsibilities and his roles, and he becomes passive. And that's what happens in Genesis 3. And the wife will then step into leadership roles, and then what happens? They get deceived. Is it interesting that deception happens, ruins the first marriage. And you get to the New Testament, and you see in Acts chapter 5, the first sin that gets called out in the church is deception by a married couple. This married couple that wants to portray that they're doing better than they actually are spiritually. They sell some land, and then they tell the whole church that they're giving all the proceeds to the church. Here's the interesting thing. The Bible never required them or commanded them to give the proceeds to the church. What they were trying to do is make things look better than they actually were. And then you see what Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. He says, why do you lie to the Holy Spirit? Acts chapter 5 verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Do you even realize what you're doing? To lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land. That was fine to do. The problem was you lied about it. And he dies. He dies. And then the wife comes in. She does the same lie. She dies. Let me tell you something. That would cure lying, or the church would be really empty. This was the. This was. These were people in the church. What? Why are we so deceptive? We lie about our our relationships. Some of us, it's like Ananias and Sapphira, similar to when Jesus confronted the Pharisees, and he says to the Pharisees, "You clean the outside of the cup, but the inside's filthy." like whitewashed tombs. You clean the outside, inside dead men's bones. Some of you, I would look at your relationship and I'd say, "They got a great marriage." But hey, would you consider mentoring some of these other couples? But you know, you've portrayed on the outside things are good, but they're not good. And it's because you're building your relationship on lies. You can't you can't fulfill God's purpose for your marriage when your marriage is built on deception. Be honest. Be honest with yourself, be honest with each other, be honest with God. And stop believing the lie that some people think that lying is for the benefit of the other person. That's never true. I remember one time I was uh, taking a class, a speech class at a public university in Michigan right after I got out of high school. And uh, one of the things that we had to do as an assignment was a persuasive speech. And we got to pick whatever topic we wanted to try and persuade the audience to come to our side on. And one guy gave a speech. I'll never forget his speech. And his persuasive speech is about why it's okay to lie. And what he did is he told this story, and this is why I won't forget it because the story was so so fun to listen to. Uh, the story was about his girlfriend's cat that was really sick, and he took the cat to the vet and had the, had the cat put down, and it went awful. He said when he dropped the cat off, he went back into this room, and he, he walked by the room where the procedure was taking place, and as he looked in, the doctor and the nurses that were there, the cat got off the table and started running from them. They started chasing the cat around the room, grabbing it by Tail, you know, just, it was not a pretty sight throw the cat down on the table eventually takes this big needle stabs it through the cat's heart the cat makes terrible noises and he watches this whole thing and he goes back to his girlfriend she says how did it go and he went "It went great <laughs> and then he told us you, you're lying for the other person's benefit but then I thought following the play is it really for her benefit or do you not want to deal with her emotions do you not want, do you not want to have to tell her what well, you, you don't want to take responsibility you couldn't even get my cat killed right you don't have to deal with the knowing that story or what, what I think it's selfish. And so sometimes you have couples and it's because of their hiding receipts, you know, those purchases they made. Some people have committed adultery and it'll be years. I think I got away with it. And if I tell them now, it's just going to hurt them more. So they lie to themselves and they lie to their spouse and they say, no, I'm not going to tell the truth because the truth would just hurt. And here's the reality. You've already hurt. You've lost intimacy. All the things you've done to cover that up, all the things you've done to hide that, you're not revealing yourself. So what's the point of our marriage? To put Christ's love for the church on display? What is Christ's love like? It was while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. It wasn't once you got cleaned up. It wasn't just you were sitting in sunscreen or cat food or vomit either. While you were in your sin, the very thing he detests, he died for you. And here's the reality about God. He knows everything about you. Read Psalm 139. He knows your thoughts before you think them. That should creep some of us out. That's some crazy thoughts. He knows your words before you say them, Psalm 139. He goes before you and behind you. There's never a place you've been that He wasn't at and isn't at. So you've never been able to sin in private, in secret. If you believe you have, that's a lie. But He still loves you. You're fully known and fully loved. It's not putting out a false self that makes you loved. And so in your marriages, you should, you want to put the gospel on display? Walk in the light. But what if they leave? Now we're getting to the real reason why you don't tell. Because you've lost control. Let me tell you something. You lost control when you sinned. You don't have control. It's a myth. Be in the light. I was reading in 1 John this week, in 1 John chapter 1, it talks about being in the light. And I thought this was, it was interesting these two verses put next to each other. In 1 John chapter 1, in verse 6, it says this If we say we have fellowship with him, God, while we walk in darkness, we lie, we're deceiving ourselves. And we do not practice the truth, it says. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Again, we see how our relationship with God impacts our relationship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But it's this next verse that, that I love is, is in here. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And so I re- talks about walking in the light. So you've got to be walking in the light. And a lot of us will think, well, that means I need to clean up my act. i got to be perfect. No, no, no. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It says in the next verse, if you claim you don't have sin, you're deceiving yourself. We all have sin. The answer is not being perfect. The answer is being perfectly honest. Be honest. Be honest with each other. Be honest. Be honest if it's, maybe it is a secret sin. Maybe it is financial. Maybe it is sexual. Maybe it is something you've never told about your past. Maybe it's something else you wouldn't have thought of. Like because you've created this false self, you don't even share your dreams with your spouse. Maybe you're afraid they'll mock you. Maybe you're afraid they'll they'll laugh at you, whatever it is. You don't even share your desires. Be honest. Some of you, one of you thinks you have a great marriage. The other one of you thinks it's good. It's not great. Be honest. Put away falsehood. Be honest. We can't stay here all day, though. There's lots of them here, so we're going to go to the next one. Don't just be honest. The next one is this. Be angry. That is a command. Some of you, that will strike you the wrong way. You think of other passages of Scripture, like, well, how can anger bring out the righteousness of God? But it says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Here, many of us think of anger only as a sin. All of us here get angry. Let's be honest with each other. Like if we were in a small group and we were sitting in a circle at my living room, I'd be like, hey, what do you get angry about? So just think to yourself, what do you get angry about? All of us get angry about something. Some of you get angry that your spouse thinks the ECU is better than NC State. And you're like, forget the results. I'm just telling you they're better. Some of you get angry when the officials call a play against you know, a penalty against your team or a foul against your basketball team that you don't agree with. You get angry about that. All of us get angry about something. What makes your blood boil? Some of you get angry because you get cut off in traffic. Some of you get angry because you're at Walmart, period. <laughs> Some of you get angry because the kids make a mess. Some of you get angry because your spouse, you want to elbow them, and I told you not to elbow them, and you're angry with me in this moment. What do you get angry about? Some of you get angry over the, the injustices in our world. Some of you get angry that there's so many orphans in this world. Some of you get angry that there's not clean drinking water. A lot of people in this world are dying because they don't have clean drinking water. And you think—you you, even some of you feel guilty because you can like, buy a bottle of water, plastic bottle, glass bottle, fizzy bottle, bottle, whatever kind of bottle of water you want to buy, and you've got clean water coming out of the faucet for free. Crazy. And there's people that are dying without clean water. Some of you are angry about sex trafficking. Some of you are angry about how many people are going to hell in our world. Some of you are angry about, what are you angry about? We all get angry. You should get angry about something. If you don't get angry about anything, that's a problem. God gets angry over 300 times in the Old Testament. He's mentioned as angry. If you had a God who never got angry, that's a problem. Because the opposite of anger is apathy. In fact, the opposite of love is apathy. A lot, a lot of people think the opposite of love is hate. Uh, Gary Thomas in his book on marriage, you can look it up sacred marriage, he says the opposite of biblical love is not hate, it is apathy. So what do you get angry about? Because what you get angry about reveals what you love. Here's the problem for most of us and it's why we think of anger as sin because we only get angry about things that violate our kingdom. Some of you, if you're honest, you get more angry about getting cut off in traffic or having to wait too long in line at Walmart than you do about people dying because they don't have clean water, about people going to hell in our city, about babies being aborted. You care more about somebody standing in front of the TV while you're watching the game. Just if you're honest, what makes your blood boil? So it's here to be angry. You know one of the things you should be angry about? If your marriage is not what it's supposed to be, Things are not as they should be. That should make you angry. I have friends, that it's their job to help people in their marriages, they're counselors, and one of their goals sometimes is to see if the husband will get angry about the problems because then he'll know whether or not he loves his wife. You angry? Be angry! But notice the next part, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. Even in your righteous anger, you're tainted by your sinful nature. And so it says in the passage, don't stay angry for long. Your anger should move you to action. Don't just stay angry. That's when bitterness seeps in. That's when slander starts to become a reality. That's when you start to cut people with your words. That's when you become impatient. Be angry, and you can be angry about the right things, and do not sin don't let the sun go down on your anger is the next part of the passage, verse 26. Now let me just say this. Some of you are like real super literal and, and legalistic in the way that you'll take passages like this. And so that means if you get mad at 8 o'clock in the morning, you got a whole lot more time to be angry than if you get mad at you know, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. That is not what this verse is saying. If it was, we should all just move to Alaska because we get like three months of anger. It'd be awesome. It's not just talking about daylight time. The principle here is, In a timely manner, deal with your anger. Don't let it fester. Don't let it be there for a long time because what happens, next part of the verse, and give no opportunity to the devil. So what happens is you give an opportunity. Who is he? He's the father of lies. He starts to speak untruth into your life. And so husbands, I'll ask it to you like this. If you knew your wife um, was just living her life, she's going to work or going to get coffee or dropping the kids off at school, whatever, somewhere she bumps into a guy and that guy becomes fascinated with your wife. And he's got eyes for her, and he slowly starts to let on that that's true, and maybe says some words like, you know, if, if I were your husband, this is I would, how he'd do it different than the way you're doing it. What he would never do that she's upset about, and what he would always do that he knows that she would like. So that guy's there, and he's starting to notice her, and maybe say these words to her. Would you invite him over to your house so that you guys could watch the game together, hang out, buy him some wings, give him some pizza, show him where you and your wife sleep, tell him about your wife. Tell them things that you love about your wife. Tell them some weaknesses in your marriage. Would you do that? If you would do that, you are a fool. No one would do that. But when we hold on to our anger, that's what we're doing. We have an enemy. He roars. He roams around like a lion, looking who he can devour. He wants to steal from you. He wants to steal your wife from you. He wants to steal your husband from you. He, he wants to destroy everything about your life. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. And we're giving him an opportunity, it says here. Some of your passages say a foothold. That's a position. You're opening the door in your life. You might as well invite him into your home. Let him see how everything operates. What are your weaknesses? He's not all-knowing like God, by the way. But you can let him in. And one of the ways is by holding on to your anger. Be angry, but let that anger move you to action. And if you're angry about the right things, God's kingdom then let that, God's word will instruct you on how to move. You're angry about sexual sin? First Thessalonians chapter 4, go there, check that out. See what that says to do. You're angry about the injustices in this world? See what, you're angry about people going to hell? Share the gospel. You're angry about clean drinking water? Get, find a way, there are lots of avenues for you to get involved in that. You're angry about your marriage? Stop being passive and take the initiative and have courage to step in to do something about your marriage. God's word tells us what actions to take. The problem for most of us is we're like, well, I don't know, how how can I get people to stop cutting me off at Walmart? It doesn't talk about your kingdom. I'll tell you honestly, just candidly, I was convicted preaching in the first service. I had to lean over to my wife. We were taking communion. We're gonna take communion later. And I said, hey, I get angry a lot more about my own kingdom than I do about God's kingdom. I had to confess that to her. Some of you, that's the same. You wanna know why there's some problems in your marriage? Because you're living the old way of life about your kingdom. It's about His kingdom. Christ's love for the church. Be angry about the right things and do not sin. Don't stay angry. Take action. Don't just be angry. The next one. The next one here is be generous. Verse uh, 28. Let the thief no longer steal. That's a lot like the enemy, isn't it? Came to steal, kill, and destroy the old way of life. But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need so here I've made this point. Be generous. When you come to your marriage, we're talking about marriage today, so it'll apply it in that situation. Come as a giver, not a taker. And this is where consumerism is killing us, by the way. So I talked about this a little bit in the first week that we were in this series, and I was talking about the different places where we get influenced in our marriage. I talked about fairy tales and romanticism and skepticism and consumerism. I'll talk a little bit more about it right now. Consumerism is the idea that if we just got something, then it would fill this void in our life. The Bible tells us that we all have a void in our life. Ecclesiastes chapter three and verse 11, God's placed eternity in our hearts. And so there's something that we're trying to fill, a void there. And we try to fill it with all kinds of things. Marketers try to get you to buy their thing. It doesn't matter if it's new lip gloss, a new car, a vacation, a house, whatever it is. They think if I just, if I had this, then maybe the void would be filled. Seems great in a moment, doesn't work. Most of us figure that out at some point. The stuff just doesn't work. But if I could just get mom and dad's approval, Doesn't work. But if I just did well, if I could accomplish these things, doesn't work. What about this hobby, this adrenaline rush? Seems great for a couple moments, doesn't work. Some people try sexual encounters, doesn't work. I should get married, doesn't work. If I finish college, doesn't work. If I had a baby, doesn't work. Here's the problem. You've got an eternal void in your heart and you're trying to use earthly things to fill it. Doesn't work. But consumerism tells us, just get more. Just keep getting more. And what we do is we come to our marriage and think, that person needs to make me happy. This union needs to do this thing for me. And if it doesn't, I move on to the next one. And so it's killing us because we keep coming to try and get. The passage here saying, stop, stop trying to, you're trying to take stuff where you're not supposed to be taking stuff. You're supposed to be there to give, be Generous. Why is the thief to be transformed in a person not only who has a job and provides for their own needs, but did you notice the passage? And help not just stop hurting people, help other people. There's only one way you can do that is to come to the place where that void in your heart is filled, that Jesus satisfies you. St. Augustine said, Our hearts are restless until they find rest in Him. He's the only one that can fulfill that void. That's why He calls Himself the bread of life. That's why he says, anyone who drinks from living water will never thirst again. I came that you could have life, that you could have abundant life. He came to give you the very void that you have in your life, but you have to find it in him. And when you find it in him, do you know what happens? You're then free to give everything. Money, time, your own life, your talents, the truth, whatever it is, you're free. You can be generous because no one's going to take that from you. One of my favorite parables in the whole Bible is in Matthew chapter 13, one verse, verse 44, Just a guy going through a field and he finds a treasure. The treasure is the kingdom of God. He finds this treasure, and then it says, "In his joy, he sells everything he has, so that he can have the field." Why is there joy? Because he knows what he's getting is better. What kingdom are you after? Your own kingdom, or the kingdom? See, the reason why many of us can't be generous is because we're so consumed with trying to get something, and we think if we give, then we're going to lose. We're missing out. What you have that ultimately satisfies, you can never lose. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Romans chapter 8. Read through it. There's a whole list of things listed. None of them can separate you, not even death. So nothing can take that away. Everything else is a gift that's been given to you to steward, why couldn't you be gen- Be generous and be generous in your marriage. Be generous with your words. Be generous with your time. Be generous in helping that person get to Jesus. Be generous in creating space. Be generous in honesty and vulnerability. Be generous in allowing them to make mistakes. Be generous in the mess and being able to sit in the mess. Don't always try to fix the mess. Be generous. Because we're not supposed to be takers. It's a sign that we're living for our own kingdom. It's the old life. Put off the old life. Put on the new life. Be a giver. Jesus Christ was a giver. He gave his life. Our marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ's love for the church. Be generous. Be honest. Be angry. Be generous. The next one is about our words. Be uplifting. That's what I say here. Be uplifting and look at it in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk. Some of your translations say unwholesome talk. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such is good for building up as it fits the occasion. So timing is key that it may give grace to those who hear. And here's one where they start to balance each other out a little bit, by the way, because some of you are really bent towards telling the truth. And so you think telling the truth means it's okay to accuse. It's okay to attack. It's okay to be not gracious. (laughs) Uh, Read all the way through to verse 29 would be my advice on that one. Give grace. Give grace. Let your words be seasoned with grace let no corrupting talk that word for corrupting or unwholesome is uh, translated foul so obviously swearing vulgar language uh, rotten is another way you could translate it anything that's burdensome things that are that tear people down slander gossip malice when you give people backhanded compliments because you're trying to make them feel smaller so you can be bigger Let let none of that come out of your mouth. That's not fitting for a believer. If you've been renewed, if you are transformed by the gospel of Christ, then you shouldn't speak that way. But then you would think that the next statement would be, but only that which is clean, only that which is wholesome. That's not what it says. The opposite of unwholesome would be wholesome, right? But that's not what it says. Look at the passage. No corrupting talk, no unwholesome, no rotten or foul, but only, and he uses language like tools, only that which is for building up. And so today, I brought some tools. And you think about different tools. You've got tools that can build stuff. I can't build stuff. This tool is supposed to build stuff. Take it as a hammer, nail, some wood. You can build a house. Like, you build a structure. You can build a playset. You can build all kinds of things with a hammer. But there's other kinds of hammers. And I brought another hammer. This is a sledgehammer. Thank you. (laughs) Steve knows. He's been to my house. He knows. The tech team, when I brought this into this morning, they said, what are you going to destroy? <laughs> like, is this table safe? They were asking all these questions. I'm like, what have I, how many object lessons have I done? Are they all breaking stuff? But That's the point of this. So if you watch the house shows, you know, Chip and Jojo, you got the bang, 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 knock the cabinets down and jumping through drywall. This is a hammer. It's not the same as this hammer. Kind of like there's words. They're all words. They're not all the same. Some words are words of life. Some words take away life. I remember one story a professor told me in seminary about one of his neighbors, 50 years old, was trying to start his lawnmower, couldn't get his lawnmower started. He came over to help his neighbor start his lawnmower and he started telling a story about when he was eight years old and his dad told him he couldn't do anything. That was 42 years before that. Words that destroy. You can have words that build up, and words that tear down. This is a tool for destruction. This is a tool for building. You can have words that give life. You can have words that take life. You can have words that are encouraging, discouraging. Give hope, take hope. What kind, When you think about your words as a whole, within the context of your relationships, because remember, this isn't just about marriage. It's about relationships. But in the context of your marriage, those of you who are married, are they words that give life or are they words that destroy? We've all said both, but characteristically, what's true of you? So these words should be gone, is what the passage is saying. These words come. And so you think of how this can be in all kinds of situations. You can compliment your spouse. You've got such great gifts. You can't do anything. What kind of words do you give? Compliments. Great job. Back ended compliments. Great job for you. Same situation. Oh, I love Thank you so much for cleaning the house. You finally cleaned up around here. Same situation. You're so creative. I wish you were more organized. (laughs) Which one? Which one is it for you? What he's saying is, in the passage, put away, put away those words. The unwholesome talk. So the tears down. Gossip, slander, malice. Only words that build up. Words of life. Because here's the reality. I'm going to share another passage of scripture with you about words. Those of you who think about your words, Matthew chapter 12 verse 34 says this. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Your words actually say a lot more about you than they do about the people you're speaking about. Do you give words of life? Are you generous with your words? Do you have words that build up, that encourage, that set other people up for for moving forward? Because some of you know, some of you are just like that guy I was talking about with the lawnmower. You know the words have impacted your life, positively or negatively. Give words of life. Be uplifting. Be honest. Be angry. Be generous. Be uplifting. This last one covers all of them. And it's the hardest one. Be forgiving. Be forgiving. Look at it with me. Verse 30 talks about grieving the Holy Spirit, which is really tied to the words that we use. When we use words that tear down, it's grieving the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31 this is a passive command. Notice this. Let, let, allow this to happen. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. You know who the one that does that? It's God, not you. Allow this to happen. What are you to do? Be kind to one another. Tender hearted. That's an interesting word. Think about tenderness. You get a wound and you're sensitive in that spot. You know, somebody, you, get, you know, cut on your shoulder and somebody touches your shoulder. It's like, ooh, real sensitive to anything that happens there. Have a heart that's like that. Feel the pain that's happened in your own life. Help you to be compassionate towards other people. Be tender-hearted. Be sensitive to sin. Be sensitive to other people's pain. Forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. So be forgiving. And then it says how to be forgiving. As God and Christ forgave you, the way that you were forgiven. So let me ask you this question. How were you forgiven? In Luke chapter 7, the Bible clearly teaches that if you have been forgiven much, you will love much. So let me ask you this. Have you been forgiven much? Most of us in our minds, when we think about that, we think about our sin, the sin that we've done. What sin have I done? Isn't it bad sin? And how bad of sin is it? And some of us, we think, well, I haven't, I haven't actually cheated on my spouse, so I'm not as bad as the people who did that, and I haven't actually committed murder. And if you think that thought, pause right there for a second. Just jot that down for yourself. And, and, I, and I haven't, well, maybe if I haven't committed murder, but maybe it was like in the army, or maybe it was self-defense, or maybe it was some other situation. I can justify it, but, but I'm not like a serial killer. Or maybe I'm a serial killer, but I'm not a serial killer who's like a cannibal. Or maybe I am. And you can just keep going down the path, by the way. We can always find somebody that we think their sin is worse. And so we start thinking, I've been forgiven much. Well, I haven't been forgiven as much as that person needs to be forgiven. And we start to be judgmental. And we don't think about our judgmentalism as that big of a deal. We don't think about our anger about our own kingdom as that big of a deal. We don't think about our speech that's destructive as that big of a deal. Our deception, our not being honest, our not being honest about ourselves, our false portrayals, our apathy, all of those, we think, oh, that's not that bad because at least, at least I haven't done this. And our problem is this. We're focusing on what we've done and not the one we've done it against. Amen. If you want to realize how much you've sinned, think about the holiness of God because that's who you're sinning against. One of the books that I recommend in the small group study throughout this series is called When Sinners Say I Do. It's by Dave Harvey. I'm going to read you a quote from Dave Harvey from When Sinners Say I Do. He says, The size of a sin is not ultimately determined by the sin itself, But by the one who sinned against. Sin is infinitely wicked because it rejects the one who is infinitely holy and good. The more we recognize the perfection of God's holiness, the more obvious this truth becomes. As you think about the one you're sinning against, he is holy. We don't talk about that very much because we want to portray God as relatable and relevant. And so we forget about, because holiness means other, it means separate from. He can't have sin in his presence. He dwells in unapproachable light. If we saw the light, we'd be done. And he's got angels constantly singing, "Holy, holy, holy, is the Lord God Almighty." Think about when Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter six, goes into God's presence as a prophet, and he says, "Woe to me!" He falls down as though dead. I'm a man, not who committed adultery, not who murdered people. I don't always speak the truth. He says, "I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. They say unwholesome things." You're like, "Oh, that's a pretty good group of people." No, because they're sinning against a holy God. He is holy and just. That means he can't have sin in his presence. It must be dealt with. But you know how he dealt with it? He poured out his wrath on his son so you could be forgiven. So how have you been forgiven? You've been forgiven much, a lot, unlimited amount. That means this, all the sin you've done in your past, all the sin in your present, and all the sin of the future is forgiven if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That's unlimited forgiveness. You didn't deserve to be forgiven. You didn't do anything. It was, remember the first three chapters of Ephesians? But God, while you were dead in your trespasses, while you were without hope, while you were continuing to sin, while you had your false speaking, while you had your anger, while you had your jealousy, while you had the hatred in your heart, which leads to murder, and gave Satan a foothold in your life, and were living your life based on lies, he died for you. And you know what he said when he was on the cross? Father, forgive them. You're forgiven because of what he did on the cross. And it was costly, by the way. In a moment, I'm going to challenge you to forgive other people. And you're going to be like, it's too hard. Think about the forgiveness that you've received. Jesus sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. If there's any other way, Father, take this cup from me. He can't even carry his own cross. He gets to the place of Golgotha. They nail him to the cross. No one takes his life. He lays it down. He allows them to drive these nails through his wrist. Hangs on the cross. They mock him. He's got the power to wipe them all out. What Self-control. For the joy set before him, he endures the shame of the cross. The joy is knowing you. The joy is you being reconciled to the Father. The joy is the glory that he will one day receive. He endures the cross. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know. They didn't realize their gossip was putting me on the cross. They didn't realize it was their lying and their deception. You say you never killed anyone? You killed him. You put him on the cross. You are guilty of murder. You acknowledge that and receive the forgiveness. Because you've been forgiven much. And how are we supposed to forgive? It says in the passage, forgive as Christ forgave you. It's costly. It should be undeserving. It's unlimited. Do you offer that forgiveness to anybody that's wronged you in a marriage relationship to your spouse? But, But Scott, you don't know what they've done. That's right. I don't. I don't need to know what they've done. You want to tell me? I'd love to talk with you about it, but I don't need to know. It might be awful. It might be more awful than anything I could imagine. Maybe they cheated. Maybe they cheated lots of times. Maybe they've lied. Maybe they've lied for years. Maybe it's not awful in the sense of the way we categorize sin. Maybe it's just been a long time of drifting apart and you don't feel compatible. You don't know how you could. You've been forgiven is the point. See, if you can't forgive someone, that doesn't, it's not about what they've done against you. It's about you not realizing what's been done for you, which is your forgiveness it's not possible. That's right. You need the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit empowers you to do the very thing that's been done for you. To forget. He's not going to command you to do something he's not going to empower you to be able to do. You can forgive. But you don't understand. They don't, they haven't confessed. I get, no, I do understand that. I've experienced that myself. I know what that's like. It doesn't say you can have reconciliation. See, you can forgive. You can be forgiving, willing to forgive. You look what God does with his people. I'm going to talk more about that next week. We'll talk about covenant. You can offer the forgiveness. It can be ready. Here's what it means for you to do. It means you release vengeance. It means you release that you're owed something. And you allow, it doesn't mean there's no accountability, by the way. There is accountability, even in forgiveness. Someone's going to pay for their sins. Either they will for eternity in hell, or Jesus Christ did on the cross for them. But they don't pay it to you. You see, when you hold on to the unforgiveness, like you've, you've got some control and you've got some power. Do you know what actually happens in your life? All this stuff that's talked about in verse 31 starts to seep into your heart. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. You think you're in control. You're being controlled. It's deception. Release that. And you're sitting in a seat you don't belong in anyways. You're not the judge. They don't know you. They don't pay you. So stop letting your soul be deteriorated and destroyed because something you're hanging on to because someone else did. Be forgiving. It's not easy. I, I get that. And I'm not saying you're going to be reconciled. Some people may, may need to confront a sin. Some people might not be willing to repent. They might not own up to their stuff. Doesn't mean you can be reconciled, but you can forgive. Be forgiving. If you can't forgive, it's more a sign of your own heart and your lack of awareness of what's been offered to you and given to you. Maybe you haven't received it. Maybe you know about the cross of Christ, but you haven't been to the cross of Christ. Maybe you, as a little kid, you prayed a prayer, or sometime at church you did something, but there's been no transformation, no change in your life, I would question whether or not you've actually received forgiveness. Some of you today, the application, you know, the command here is to forgive. Some of you need to be forgiven before you can ever forgive. This is all written to believers. And some of you here, you're married to someone who's not a believer. I'd get, let me give a warning. I had a friend that write me this week said they're married to a non-believer. It's the most difficult thing in their life. If anybody in our church is dating somebody who's not a believer, let me talk to them. Tell them to run. So none of the stuff we talked about in this whole series is possible in a marriage if one person's not a believer. It takes two people for any of this stuff to actually work. But God's got a word for each one of us today. So what does he want to say to you? Be honest. Be honest about what he wants to say to you today. Be angry about the things that you should be angry about. Jesus overturned the tables in the temple. Be angry. Be generous. Be uplifting. And be forgiving. Moms, you cleaned up some terrible messes in life. Thank you. It's one of the ways that you reveal our Heavenly Father. So, when you're cleaning up the milk or the other stuff, know that even in those minor tasks, you're revealing our Father because our Father is the only one that can ultimately clean the messes up in our marriage. He gives us the instructions. We all deviate because we all make messes. And God is gracious and He forgives. So, we're going to go to Him. We're going to go to Him right now in some moments of repentance. We're going to go to Him in prayer. Some of you maybe now would be an appropriate time to elbow or hold the hand of the person next to you. Maybe it's time to turn to them and, and confess too. And uh, for some of you, you might just need to reflect. And uh, forgiveness oftentimes is a process, not just an event. And so that event might be again right at this moment. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now and my heart's heavy for those that maybe don't know you as Savior. and Maybe they think they do and you need to speak to their hearts right now. You're speaking to them. You might be speaking to one person in this very moment. I pray for that one person that you'd overwhelm their heart with conviction, that they would feel miserable, they would feel the weight of your hand on them because you are a holy and righteous and just God and that you would speak to their heart right now and maybe even say to them, he's talking to you. And that they would call upon your son Jesus to be their savior. They would acknowledge their sin and they would ask Jesus to be their savior in this very moment. And Father, I pray for those that you need to empower to forgive. There's been some great wrongs that have been done to folks that are hearing these words. And and the only way that it could ever happen is by your supernatural power. God, will you do that? Will you restore? Will you reconcile? Will you have people get angry about the things they should be angry about? Will you convict hearts that have been angry about their own kingdom, they need to change? God, will you have people get honest, get honest in situations they haven't been honest about? And maybe that's in a marriage. Maybe it's not just in a marriage relationship, maybe it's in another relationship. Father God, will you do a work in our midst?